Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. Well, if you don't know me, my name is J.D. Lowry, one of our teaching pastors here. also have the, the privilege and honor of overseeing our young adult ministry. And so if I have not met you, I'd love to meet you. Um, come say hey. We are so glad you are at church today. Um, we do ask that you continue to pray for our team over in Germany right now. Uh, you know, we, it was kind of, it was a light staff week this week. Um, and so I was, there was a temptation to be like, all right, church, let's make some things, let's get some things done. You know what I mean? Let me make some changes around here. Um, <laughs> you know, cat, the cat's away, so the mouse comes out to play. All right. Um, but Jason is returning. Our team is getting back. And so y'all be praying for them. Um, but we are super excited that you are here. We are starting a new series, uh, and it's called Breakthrough. Um, I, uh, I was recently learning about um, something that took place during uh, World War II. It was during the 1930s and into the 40s. Uh, the Germans were taking over, speaking of Germany, right? Kind of poor taste, maybe. Um, <laughs> got to think about that one next time. Um, the Germans were taking over the world, all right? They were, they were running over all the European countries. Uh, Blitz, Blitzkrieg, was, they, they took over France at breakneck speed. It was unheard of how fast the German military took over Europe. Um, now, when you're at war, it's important to not let the enemy know what you're trying to do. And so the Germans... They would encode their messages with the best encoding machine that there had ever been. It was called the Enigma machine. They would type in whatever message they would want to send. It would output a coded message to send to people on the front lines or back at HQ. And the people who were receiving the message, they would input whatever the message was, and it would output the message that they were trying to receive. And the allies could not break this code. Because the Enigma machine could code messages with the possibilities, different possibilities, and here's, here's the probability of how well it coded messages. It was 158 quintillion, 962 quadrillion, 555 trillion, 217 billion, 826 million, 360,000 different possibilities that would come out of the Enigma machine. That's a lot. I heard somebody say that's a lot. That is a lot. Uh, that, that's, that's a lot of possibilities. And so the Allies, they could not break this code. But with the help of the Poles, there's a man in the UK, his name was Alan Turing. There's a, a movie made about him, it's called Imitation Game, uh, about this man called Alan Turing. And he, uh, with the help of a Polish design, they created this machine, it's called the bomb, that could uh, simultaneously run through all the different possibilities of the German code. And they were able to break the code almost as fast as the Germans could encode the messages. And it was said that if you're a German commander, you might be, and you were trying to, you got an encoded message, you might be better off calling Bletchley Park, which was where they were encoding the message, decoding the messages, to find out what was said. They were reading it that quickly because of this man. Whenever you're de dealing with an enemy, it's important to know what his plans are. And how he's going to keep you in chains. What his tactics are. And so that's our hope for this series. 
because we just came out of a Ten Commandments series, and y'all were like, man, maybe they'll, like, let up a little bit, you know? And we're not. We're talking about sin, all right? We're talking about sin, and these are the tactics of the enemy. And so we hope in this series that as we study them, you will come out of here better equipped and better prepared to break the chains in your life, better equipped and better prepared to walk through and deal with the attacks of the enemy in your life. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Um, Genesis is at the front of the book, so it's pretty simple. You just open it up, flip over a couple pages, boom, there you are. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be read, reading verses 1 through 6. 1 through 6. It'll be on the screen, there'll be notes in your handout, you can follow along. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Let's pray together. God, um, here we read about the fall that sent us all to where we're at today. God, it's, it's heartbreaking to recognize within our heart is a desire to, to be like you and to, to be higher than we ought to be. Um, and God, Satan so often attacks us with that. God, I pray today that you would bind Satan. Lord, I pray that as people walked into to the church today, they sent something different. Lord, I pray that you would begin to break chains right now. Lord, I pray that you would begin to, to crush pride in each of our hearts so that however you would have us respond, Lord, that we would not be thinking first of other people's perception of us. We not, would not be thinking first of how this reflects on us. We would not even be thinking first of, oh, I want to do it myself, Lord, that we would just simply be overcome with humility and that we would be willing to surrender and lay it at your feet. God, you are so good for pursuing us even though we fall. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So here we see Satan. He comes after the image bearers of God with literally the oldest trick in the book. First he calls into question what God has said. And that is the oldest trick in the book. Did God really say? So many of us, so many of us are tempted to fall for that trick did God really say because honestly perhaps we're listening to our pride and we don't want God to have really said something but he has next he appeals to the pride of man look in verse 5 um, for God knows when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil I, I there's a comma there and I know for a fact there was a comma in the garden. Satan looked at these people and said, you, if you eat of it, you will be like God. 
knowing good and evil. Because within the heart of man was a desire to be higher than we ought to be. It's a desire to be glorified. This is a trap in the bait that Satan set for these people was a desire to be higher than they ought to be. Church, Satan sets the same trap with the same bait for us every day, all day, throughout the world. It's everywhere you look. All sin ultimately traces its roots to pride. You don't believe me? Listen to this. Stealing. Sin, right? You think you deserve something that's not yours. Higher than you ought to be. Murder. You view someone's life as less valuable than your own. Lying. You, deserve, you, you view yourself as the arbiter of truth and are allowed to distort it. Drugs, alcohol, or any other kind of addiction. You're putting your perceived needs above everyone else's in your life. And you ignore how your actions affect others around you. Littering. You view your trash as other people's problems. Lust, you view people as objects and therefore below you. Adultery, you're putting yourself and your desires before the needs and desires of your spouse. Gluttony, you're consumed with what makes you feel good. Apathy, you think that things should, they ought to just happen for you. Low self-esteem, you believe that what you think about yourself is more important than what God thinks about you. We trace every sin, name a sin, we trace it back to pride. This is why Satan puts it in front of us oh so much. Pride is one of the few sins in our culture that we're kind of okay with. Like it's viewed with overwhelming positivity. Even in like the most like conservative Bible Belt small towns, you will still see up in the football, high school football stadium, I grew up in Terrell, high school football stadium, up in the stands it says Tiger Pride. Coaches will say, have a sense of pride when you walk. Have a sense of pride when you play. Have a sense of pride about yourself. We don't say that with any other sin. We like pride. We like what it does to us. There's a whole growing movement in our society of sin. And they have made pride to be their title. There's their declaration that everyone should just be proud of who they are. And they should just be proud of themselves and who they think they are. In doing so, they've rejected who God says that they are. And they've elevated what they've said above the words of their God. It's pride. Satan is not hiding the ball here, guys. This is not a trick play. It is right in front of us, and we see it everywhere we go. And so, starting this series breakthrough, obviously the first sin, the first thing that we need to tackle, the first thing that we need to break through is that of pride. Because it is so, so dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Well, dangerous for a few reasons. Pride is dangerous because it keeps us from reaching for eternal life. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. See, it was pride in the hearts of Adam and Eve that drew them into disobeying God. They had everything they could ever want or need. They were on an all-expenses-paid cruise that was sponsored by God. Do you guys know that the Garden of Eden, it's called the Garden of Eden that they were in. Eden means paradise. And they were in paradise with God. They had everything they could have ever needed. 
They had all the food they could ever need. They, I mean, it wasn't 150 degrees outside. It was beautiful. They didn't need anything. They had everything. They were on an all-expenses-paid cruise. But the pride of man, <coughs> fed by the deception of Satan, led man to looking at the captain of this cruise ship, who is God, and declaring that they didn't need his boat to survive. Man wanted to be his own captain, but the issue for man is man doesn't have a boat. Pride is what sent us adrift in the sea. But God loves us so much that he tossed us a life raft whose captain is Jesus. We're adrift in the sea with no hope. We see a life raft with a captain willing to save us. But pride is still telling some of us that we don't need saving. It's the pride in us that will not reach for the raft. It's the pride that will not cry out for help. We're so convinced that we can keep ourselves afloat. In church, it may not happen today and it may not happen tomorrow, but at some point your legs will give, will give out. You can't tread water anymore. You will sink and you will die. And you may have been coming to church here for a while, and you've sat through quite a few church services, and you've consistently managed to put off surrendering to Jesus. You're treading water, and Jesus is begging you to get into the raft. But in order for you to do that, you would need to accept two things. The first one is this. The fact that you don't have a boat, and you can't survive on your own. First one. First John 1, 8-9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us, our, forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Listen, you can lie to yourself and tell yourself that you're enough, or you can admit that you need a Savior and you need a lifesaver. If you do, he will forgive you. The first one is that. The second one is this. In order for you to get on Jesus' boat, you have to acknowledge him as captain. Romans 10.9 says this. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We'll have a time of response this week at the end of service. And today you're going to have to choose. You're going to have to make a choice. You will either choose to, to surrender to the lordship, to the captaincy of Jesus, or you will continue to lie to yourself and continue to tread water. And I'm begging you, at some point, your legs are going to give out, and you're going to sink. Please, surrender today. Matthew 10, 32-33 says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Pride is dangerous because it keeps us from reaching for salvation. We think we're good. Pride is also dangerous because it keeps us entangled in sin. Now, this can be for the believer or the unbeliever. I've spoken with many people who have come, reached out to me, wanted to get coffee, wanted to get together, wanted, or they stop by my office, and they begin this conversation with a great deal of caution and nervousness. And I know what the conversation is about. It's going to be a conversation of confession. They begin to tell me whatever sin has been wrecking their life or whatever issues they've been holding on to, and they, it's almost like they expect me to be shocked by the fact that they struggle with sin. It's almost like they expect me to kick them out of my office and say, well, get out of here. I cannot believe what you've done. I've never once been shocked 
by a sinner telling me that they sin. Jesus has never been shocked by a sinner telling him that they sin. Jesus is looking at you, sinking in the, in the water. He's not shocked that you're soaking wet. He's not. And every time that happens, somebody comes to me, I, if they're a believer, I always remind them of the truth found in Romans 8.1, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hear me, if you're in Christ, Jesus bore the punishment. He bore the punishment for your sin already. You are not expected to carry around that guilt. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. He meant it for me and he meant it for you. Carrying that guilt does nothing. It's already been carried. And yet we still so often grab hold of it. And guilt always leads to shame. And I just got a question. Has anyone here ever been shamed into righteousness? No. You're never shamed into righteousness. Shame always leads to sin, which kind of leads into this sin cycle. I've got a tale of two paths I want to show you. So sin happens. We're faced with two choices. You sin, you mess up, you're ashamed, you're upset, you're sin, you're heartbroken. you got two options. You can hide it or you can confess it. Hiding always leads to more sin, and I'll show you how. Look at this cycle. Hiding, it leads to guilt. You begin to feel guilty about the sin that you've committed, and you begin to feel shame. You're like, I can't tell anybody I've sinned, I'm horrible, I can't believe I did this again. You begin to forget what Jesus did for you on the cross. And then you carry this guilt, and you can't sleep at night, and you're upset, and you feel like you're just all alone, and it always leads to more sin. And then you go like, I can't believe I did this again. I'm carrying this guilt, I'm carrying this shame. How could I have messed up again? Figure, well, I've messed up twice. What's the third time? And then you're upset. You're like, I can't believe I did this again. You messed up again. What's the fourth time? Just time after time after time after time. Begin to forget what Jesus has done for you. Begin to carry the shame, this guilt that's already been placed on Jesus. And you're just like, I, somehow the gospel doesn't apply to me anymore. I can't tell anybody. Pride always leads to this cycle of sin. But what if we confessed? What if we laid aside our pride? What if we confessed? Where would that lead us? Confession is also followed by repentance. Church, that leads to breakthrough. Some of you are like, I can't do that. I can't tell anybody about what I've done. They'll never forgive me. They'll never understand. They won't get it. I can't tell God. I can't tell my wife. I can't tell my husband. I can't tell my friends. I can't tell anybody. Let's take place. I'm a connect group leader. I can't struggle with this. And when people know how long I've been struggling with this, they'll think I'm a fraud. They will never forgive me. They will never understand. God will never understand. Church, God, Jesus, he's not shocked when you're wet when you get out of the ocean. He died for that sin. He knew about it. God says, God's word says that God demonstrates his love for you and that while you were a sinner, Christ died. That means he saw the sin and still died. And he did that for you. Pride. Which of these two directions would pride tell you to go? Pride would tell you to hide it because nobody can know about it because it, it matters what people think of me. Pride will tell you to hide it, suppress it, don't tell anybody about it, just deal with it on your own. Because 
We live in this cancel culture. Confession is, is not met with forgiveness. Confession is met with destruction. Confession is met with con- cancellation. Confession is met with condemnation. But that's not true. That's not found in Scripture. Jesus does not subscribe to cancel culture. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. We will not find breakthrough if we refuse to admit that we have a problem. This is the first step in salvation. This is also the first step for any believer in here that needs to find breakthrough. Confession. Admitting that there's an issue. If we don't admit that sin is a problem, we will not feel the need to cry out to Jesus in his life raft. We continue to live in the grips of sin that have always entangled us if we refuse to admit that we're in chains and we need help. So pride is dangerous because it keeps us from reaching for eternal salvation. It's also dangerous because it keeps us entangled in sin. But pride is also dangerous because it hinders our ministry. Listen, whenever ministry is made about me, whenever ministry is made about us, it's eternally useless. It's meaningless in eternity. I, listen, I could preach the gospel of JD, but that's a gospel that can't save nobody. Can't save anybody. I'm up here preaching, but I have nothing to offer any of you that is worthy of comparison with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've, uh, I've gotten into golf in recent years, um, and uh, it's a frustrating game. Um, uh, I'm still definitely very much in the learning phase of my golf game. Um, you know, uh, so we're, we're still figuring it out. But it's fun. I like being outside. I have a good time with it. Uh, my brother-in-law is actually here. Uh, he and his wife drove out here to, to you know, support, support, the, support this guy. Um, they're good friends. Uh, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on him for a second. Um, he is also in a similar phase of his golf game that I'm in. Um, and so whenever we hit golf balls together, um, I don't really give him advice. And he doesn't really give me advice. And we just try to hit the golf ball. And we hit it some of the time, right? Like, <laughs> some of the time we hit it, and it's, it's fun. Um, but, like, in order for me to give some sound golf advice, at, at one point I had to at least be good at golf or, like, understand how the golf swing works. Um, that doesn't stop everyone out at the golf range from offering advice, but it's okay. Um, <laughs> here's the deal. If you want to, like, Every bit of advice I can give you comes from my relationship with Jesus. Every bit of counsel I can give you comes from my relationship with Jesus. I have to have been good at golf to give some golf advice. I have to have had a relationship with somebody who's good at golf to give some good golf advice. This applies to me in my position to preach, but it also applies to you in your ministry, in your office, or at your school. If you want to do anything of substance in this world, if you want to preach anything of substance in this world that has eternal impact, we have to lean on the power that comes from our relationship with Jesus. I've never been a great golfer. I'm not going to offer golf advice. I have nothing to offer you from my own power. Jesus has something to offer you. I cannot get up here with pride in my heart and preach. I had a mentor, his name is Jared Stevens. He, he, this is one of his quotes. He would say, when pride gets on the platform, God gets off. It's true for me when I'm preaching up here. I cannot get up here with a prideful heart to preach the good news of Jesus. Every time before I get up to preach, I, if you see me during the last time before, before I get up here, I hold out my Bible, I step forward into my calling, and I hold out my Bible, and I'm like, God, I'm stepping into my calling here today. Uh, 
I've, I've worked, I've studied, I've prepped, but Lord, this is water. I need you to turn it to wine in the hearts of people here. I offer nothing apart from who, what you're going to say today. I need Jesus to minister. And that's not just from up here. Church, you need Jesus to minister. And your job is bigger than, than uh, fulfilling a quota at work or, or doing a certain number of reports or teaching a certain number of students. Your job's bigger than that. Your eternal job is to preach the good news of Jesus, not to preach the good news of, of J.D. Or, or Don or Jaden or Pam or anybody. It's to preach the good news of Christ. That's where salvation is found. So when we do ministry with pride in our hearts, looking down on the people we're ministering to, we pervert the gospel. We've become a Coke salesman drinking Pepsi. The whole point of the gospel is that we need it too. There's a passage that's my, it's maybe like my life verse passage in ministry. Um, I love it. My, we've been here, we've been at Crossroads for like two years now. I don't know if it, yeah, it's like two years we did it. Um, and two years ago, whenever we started this ministry here, um, whenever I took the job, Arden Claire gave me, uh, she printed off this passage of scripture. She knows I love it. And she put it in a frame and it's in my office to this day. Um, and I just want you to listen to it. It says, oh, there we go. It says this, for Titus 3, 3 through 7 says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, Paul is reminding us in this text that the only thing that separates us from the most ardent sinner, the worst person in the world, the only thing that separates you and them from being exactly evil, equal, equal before the Lord is Jesus. The only thing that separates us from Adolf Hitler is Jesus before, before Christ. That's it. It's not wor- because of works done by us in righteousness. It's because of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. We look like a joke if we preach the gospel with pride in our hearts. We say things like, Jesus loves you and will do anything for you, and there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. Meanwhile, we're telling the world to look at our good works. Look at the good things that we've done. We're preaching to these people, these lowly sinners, like, hey, there's nothing you need to do to earn your salvation. There's nothing Jesus needs from you. Meanwhile, we're looking at Jesus and being like, look at all, look at all this stuff I've done for you. There's a disconnect there. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How are we going to minister if you forget that you need the gospel too? Ministry has to be about equipping, empowering others. If we only want to promote ourselves, then our ministry will die with us. And hear me, if you only want to promote yourself, your ministry should die with you. 
So pride, it's dangerous for all of these reasons. It's dangerous because it keeps us from reaching for eternal salvation. It's dangerous because it keeps us entangled in sin. It's dangerous because it hinders our ministry. But this series is called Breakthrough, and so far I've just been depressing everybody. So, so what's going on? How do we break through, specifically, how do we break through pride? Well, first we need to look to Jesus for example. See, dealing with pride is nothing new, and we're not the first people to struggle with it. Paul wrote this to the Philippian Christians, encouraging them to follow the example of none other than Jesus. Philippians 2, 3-8 says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, Jesus is not, Jesus is not asking you for something that he did not set the example for. Jesus who is God, was willing to let go of heaven to come down here to earth. Some of us won't let go of earth to go up there to heaven. This reality should radically shape our everyday living. We are going to look at Jesus in the eyes one day, and are we honestly going to look at him with a straight face and say, well, that thing that you asked from me, I'm not going to do that. It's too hard. That person you want me to put before myself, I'm not going to do that. That's too hard. Are we going to look Jesus in the eye and say that to him? This, this God who, who left everything for us, do we feel that we're above any task that he would give us? Church, we are not. See, Jesus is our king. And Jesus, who is our king, our king put on flesh. Our king was born in a nasty, smelly stable. Our king lived 33 long, hard, challenging years here on earth. Our king walked everywhere he went. Our king wore tattered clothes. Our king spent time as a homeless man. Our king was betrayed. Our king was wrongfully accused. Our king was wrongfully condemned. And our king was wrongfully crucified. Our king did all of this for you and for me. And he knew he was going to have to do that for you and for me and still did it. And because he did all of that for you and for me, when our king rose in victory three days later, if he is the king of your life, one day you too will rise up and spend eternity with him. You can experience breakthrough eternally because of that. But church, hear me, you can also experience breakthrough in the here and now because of what Jesus has done. His humility is our example and we ought to follow it. Next, we need to look to Jesus for salvation. Matthew 14, 22 through 33 says this, Immediately, and I love this story, Immediate, immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, had, he came to them, walking on the sea. 
But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were on the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. There's a couple things. This is one of my favorite stories in all the scriptures. There's a couple things I want us to see here. Uh, first one is this. When you're sinking in the waves, cry out to Jesus. He will save you. He will. Peter found himself here in a precarious situation. Uh, he was sinking in the water in stormy seas. His example is valuable. When you're sinking, the first service I said when you're sinking. It's when you're sinking... Cry out to Jesus, he will save you. The issue for some of us is that we don't maybe realize that we're sinking. Maybe we felt like we're drowning our whole lives. We don't even know what it feels like to breathe. You don't know what it feels like to have air in your lungs. Maybe our whole lives. We've we've been fighting and clawing and scratching, trying to stay above the water. would just urge you to cry out, Lord, save me. Psalm 34, verse 8 says this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Cry out to Jesus. He will save you and stand you up. Next, the second thing I see here. You are capable of impossible things when your eyes are fixed on Christ. Some of you may feel like what stands before you, perhaps the chain that has you captive like in captive is is unbreakable what stands before you is impossible to overcome there's no way for you to overcome this addiction there's no way for you to restore your marriage there's no way for you to restore this relationship with a parent or with a child there's no way it is impossible there's no way for you to do what's needed this is pride speaking to you see jesus does not expect you To walk on water, he expects you to trust him. Peter gets a lot of bad rap here in this story. Um, You know, you read the story and you're like, ah, Peter, classic Peter, man, you know, sinking in the water, right? Like, looking at the waves, like, what a chump, you know? Like, classic Peter, this guy, he's a scrub. I mean, but here's, here's the reality. Two people in the history of the world, history of humanity, have ever walked on water. One of them was Peter. The other one was God. That's pre- I mean, that's, that's kind of cool. Like, that's an impressive thing. Peter was able to do something that is impossible, is and was impossible, not because of who he was, but because of his focus and where his focus was. If you want breakthrough, no matter the sin, no matter the chain, and it might be impossible, look at Jesus. When you look at Jesus, impossible things become possible. Not because of who you are, but because of where your focus is. Peter was walking on water, and he looked around. This is for the believers in the room. You've been saved. It's impossible for you to get to heaven 
You're on the path to heaven. Perhaps you're walking on water. It's impossible. Your existence is impossible right now. You're walking on water. You get distracted, you sink. And he says, oh, you have little faith. Jesus might be saying to some of you, I've forgiven your sins. I've brought you into eternal salvation. And now you're getting distracted by all this stuff. You trust me to save you. You don't trust me with this thing. You trust me to get out of the boat, but you don't trust me to, to sustain you in the midst of it. Where is our focus? What are we looking at? Where are our eyes fixed upon? See, pride will tell you that you can do, do, you can do this on your own. But hey, church, hear me. Pride is a liar. You can't. We are in desperate need of the blood of Jesus. I'm going to read a hymn for you this morning. I love hymns. This hymn was written by, the, by a man by the name of Robert Lowry. And can I just say, fantastic last name. I mean, <laughs> I mean, dude's a leader. Golly. I mean, my goodness. Lowry, honestly, he might have been a musical genius. Um, he wrote a number of beautiful hymns. I'm going to read some of the hymn titles for you. One more day's work for Jesus. Where is my wandering boy tonight? I need thee every hour. The mistakes in my life, how can I keep from singing? Savior, thy dying love, we're marching to Zion. Shall we gather at the river? But my personal favorite from his catalog is this. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I want to just read these words. They're going to be on the screen. And I want you to think about what Jesus has done for you. And I want you to, to, to ponder about the fact that, like, this is your plea. And it's not based on who you are. You cannot walk on water, but Jesus can sustain you in the midst of waves. I want you to just think about this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Some of us live lives like, what can wash away my sin? Well, maybe some good deeds. Or maybe if I give enough money to the church. But this song declares the good news of the gospel. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's not a, t there's not a, a, a self-help program. There's not a book that can make you whole again. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. There's no amount of good that you can do. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. How many of us are content with that right now? This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all of my righteousness. All of my righteous, righteousness is as filthy rags compared to the, when presented to the Lord. This is all the righteousness I have to, to offer, and it's not even mine. It's the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Church, part of laying down your pride is recognizing Unbeliever, part of laying down your pride is recognizing that there is nothing you can do to earn your salvation. You need the blood of Jesus, nothing more and nothing less. 
And when you die and you're standing before our holy, righteous God, eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, all-seeing, all-knowing God, righteous, just, judge, and he is looking at you, and you're on trial, and you've got, you can plead guilty and receive the punishment that is justly yours. You can plead innocent and be condemned by the evidence that's against you and receive the punishment that's justly yours. Or you can plead the blood of Jesus. And if you claim the blood of Jesus, you will be saved. But here's the reality. You can't reach for a life raft if you're drowning, if you're dead. If you're sinking in the waves, if you're dead in the water, you cannot reach for a life raft. You have to do it before you die. You have to plead the blood before you die. If you plead the blood while you're still living, you will find forgiveness, you will find life, but you must surrender. First John 1, 8 and 9 says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. Perhaps you're here today and you're like, all right, I'm just like, you feel like I've been reading your mail. Like somehow I know what's going on in your life. I don't. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Something's telling you that you need to respond whenever we sing. You need to go to the corner and talk to the people in the prayer corner and just ask them about how to plead the blood, how to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Can I just say, if you're like, oh, is this just me? Is this just like, am I just getting caught up in the emotion? Can I tell you this? Your flesh will never urge you to respond in obedience to the call of Jesus. There's nothing in your flesh that will tell you to surrender. If there's something telling you to surrender, telling you that today is the day, that is none other than God himself speaking to you. See, we were all sinners. The Bible says, if you, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Today, you're standing before God. You're treading water, trying to stay above the sea. And God is crying out to you. He's saying, if you would just surrender, I've got a life raft for you. The Bible says, for all of sin fallen short of the way, fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible also says, for the wages of sin is death. See, your own sin puts you in the water. And you're going to die in your sin. But that verse continues, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a path for you. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's that life raft. That is Jesus saying, just come to the life raft. Just receive this forgiveness. Walk in this life. Let me, let me pull you out of the depths of this sin and this chain. Let me save you. All you've got to say is, Lord, you've got to say what Peter said in the water. Lord, save me. And he will. You've got two choices. You can choose to continue to lie to yourself and tell you you're all good. Or you can surrender to Jesus today and declare him the captain of your life and can I just say, if you taste and see, you will taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's plead the blood today. Lord, we love you. We praise you for who you are. Lord, I pray today for souls that need salvation. Lord, I pray, I pray that you would move in hearts. Lord, there's somebody here that does not have a relationship with you. And if they died today, they would die eternally separated from you. Lord, if we want breakthrough, this is not self-help. This is God help, and we're pleading for it. God, I pray that today all across this room, lost hearts would plead the blood and say, 
Jesus, I'm done treading water. I'm done fighting. I'm done trying to do this on my own. Lord, save me. Lord, I know that you will. It pleases your heart to save sinners that need a Savior. And there's, a, there's plenty here. God, I pray that you would move. God, give them the boldness, the courage to get, run to the corner, to run to Jesus. Lord, help us to plead the blood. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.